All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our Foundations of the Faith class. We are going to be looking at the last chief part in the small catechism, which is the sacrament of the altar. Before we do that, let's have an invocation and prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, in the 2017 Small Catechism, it is page 28, and of course if you're in uh, some additional version, it is going to be after the part on confession and before the section on daily prayers. So, the sacrament of the altar, I, as I've mentioned before, I really enjoy most of the artwork in this version of the Catechism. If you do have the 2017 version, what you have there is a, uh, a crucifix, so an, a depiction of Christ crucified. What else do you see in that picture? Chalice. There's a chalice yeah, right behind it. Right behind it. So when we talked about baptism, we looked at the picture of baptism, you saw how the crucifix was above the baptismal font, the artist depicting that what, what Christ did once and for all is communicated and given to us in the waters of holy baptism. Romans 6 is the really easy verse to just keep in mind there, that through baptism we are so united with Christ that we are, that we are buried with him through baptism into death in order that we might be raised with him. So every so so if you'll pardon the the creative or not so creative language, he he good fridays us and easters us through the waters of baptism, making what Christ has done ours, ours. And then the same thing is true for the sacrament of the altar. It's just that the sacrament of the altar takes on a different shape than baptism. Baptism is done once the sacrament of the altar is repeated. Baptism is with water. There's no eating or drinking. This is with bread and wine, and there is eating and drinking. So there are differences. There's compare and contrast we can do. But right down the heart of baptism, right down the heart of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar, are the same things. In the sacrament of the altar, what is that we receive? The body and blood of Christ. Why are the, why are the body and blood separated? That harkens back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, where the body of the, of the sacrificial victim and the blood are separated. Now, this is alien to our modern way of thinking because we're not doing sacrifices or seeing sacrifices on a daily or weekly or annualized basis. So we're not familiar with this, but the idea of separating the body from the blood in a sacrificial victim is part of the sacrifice. And so for Christ to just, I mean, instead of just taking bread, why didn't he just take bread and say, this is me for you? There's more going on there. He takes the bread and says, this is my body. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood. The body and the blood are separated. It's the sacrifice that he made once and for all on the cross being brought to you in time and space, present tense, so that you might have the forgiveness of your sins. Does that make sense? So the artist, I think, depicts this beautifully, that the cross comes to us through the chalice. Why such emphasis on the chalice? Well, we'll take a look at this in a little detail, but it is uniquely and specifically of the chalice that Jesus says, this is the New Testament or the New Covenant. This cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So, properly speaking, what is the New Testament? Not, not the books at the end of your Bible. <laughs> you'll, you'll search the scriptures in vain, you know, for, for a single verse that says the New Testament consists of these books at the end of your Bible. 
But what you will find is in red letters, Jesus saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Um, we'll talk about this idea of New Testament and what's the Old Testament and what's the, what's the parallel, what's the connection there. We'll talk about that as we go a little further, as long as I don't forget. What else do you see in that picture? There's the grapes and the wheat. Yes, the grapes and the wheat. Of course, representing the wine that Jesus took and the bread that Jesus took. There's a little more richness in theology. Um, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians. Does does anyone know? Can anyone piece that together? How many, how many grains are in one loaf? Countless, many. The many grains are brought into one. How many grapes are in a, are in a cup of wine? Countless, right? Who knows? The many grapes are brought into one cup. And so, um, in, now that theology comes right out of St. Paul, and the idea is that this is a communion, a koinonia, koinonia is the Greek term, and it's a communion not just, not just vertically, me as an individual with God, it's not just a communion vertically, but it's a communion horizontally with everyone gathered there. We are all like grapes being brought into one cup, all like grains being brought into one bread. We who are many, all are one body in Christ our head. Make sense? And in a very real sense, it is precisely in eating his body that we become members of his body. How does... uh, how does normal eating work? If you, if you eat a carrot, do you become a carrot? No. The carrot becomes you. <laughs> yeah. when you. When you eat, you assimilate all the foods you eat into you. And that's because you're higher than all of these foods. And so you assimilate, um, you assimilate them into you. But with the Lord's Supper, it's different. Because the meal is higher than you. The one of whom you are partaking is a, is a higher thing. And so you don't transform the body and blood of Christ into you, but rather you are transformed by them into him because it is a higher meal that we are eating. And so we are transformed into one body with him. This is why Paul talks about us as being members of one body. It's not as if he were just, you know, sitting there one day in the hot sun outside of Jerusalem thinking, what's a good analogy here? Oh, I know. There's a, a, just as a body has many members, so also a church has lots of people and they're all different. Some of them are armpits. Some of them are... No, I'm just teasing. Uh, no, that's not what St. Paul is doing. St. Paul is thinking very carefully that at the heart of Christianity is receiving the body and blood of Christ and thus becoming one body with him and having his life, that's the blood, having his life in us as our life. And that's what constitutes us as one. And then, of course, there's this diversity of group. And so we'll say then that, or this diversity of gifts. And so then we'll say this one body has many different members with different functions, different gifts and abilities. Okay, so as we reflect on the picture, we see, um, we see the grapes and the grain. And we are reminded um, not only of our vertical communion with Christ, but of our horizontal communion with one another. All right, under that, the banner, the sacrament of the altar. Now remember from when we looked at baptism, sacrament comes from the Greek word word mysterion, which is mystery. We talked about how this can be understood in a very broad sense and is biblically understood in a very broad sense as anything that our human reason can't quite grasp a hold of. Any article of the faith, which happens to be, as far as I know, all of them, where you run into two seemingly contradictory things that you simply have to set your reason underneath the Word of God and say, I believe. Um, But in a more narrow sense, from Augustine on, sacrament takes on a, a narrow technical meaning And it tends to be articulated in a threefold manner. You have to have a visible sign, 
You have to have a communication of God's grace or mercy, and you have to have a command of Christ. Those are the three. If you want to shorten it just to the two and you assume that Christ has commanded it, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it, then it's a sign and the word. What's the sign and the word in baptism? Do you recall? Hopefully you know what the sign is. Water. And what's the pastor say? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the water and the word. Okay. Um, so then, then what's the sign in the Lord's Supper? The bread and the wine. And what's the word? The words of institution, the words of Christ. Yeah. And so that word and sign communicate grace to us, communicate the forgiveness of sins to us, and thus, are, thus fit this narrower definition of what a sacrament is. When we talk about the sacrament of the altar, of course, altars have, were part of Old Testament worship, even from the very earliest days, um, all the way through the Old Testament, and in use even unto the New. Altar depicts sacrifice, of course. So to have this be the sacrament of the altar, the mystery of the altar, is already in itself to indicate that this is a sacrifice that we are receiving. And now we'll be quick to point out, this is the once and for all sacrifice made by Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, but it is being brought present to our altar for us Christians to eat and to drink. Okay, so thus we call it the sacrament of the altar. What other names are there besides the sacrament of the altar? Communion. communion and we talked about the biblical root for that, koinonia, the communion, the oneness coming into one or coming into fellowship. Um, so we have a communion vertically with Christ and a communion horizontally with one another. Okay, so sacrament of the altar, communion. What other names have you heard? Lord's Supper. I like the Lord's Supper. It reminds us that it's not our supper. So we don't get to define what it is or set the parameters. Or We have to, we have to in all things, submit ourselves to the words of the Lord because it is the Lord's Supper. Okay, um, what else? What else? Eucharist. Eucharist, right. That comes from the Greek word, uh, well, <laughs> what is the verbal form? Eucharisto, I give thanks. Is that right? I think that's right. Um, and it's, it, comes from the, it comes from when Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, and gives thanks. Right. So that Eucharist, thanksgiving. Okay. So Eucharist isn't a... Eucharist isn't a bad meal. It is the true Thanksgiving, by the way. You know, Christian, Christians, we kind of, in this country, celebrate Thanksgiving because it's fun and who's really going to be against a time to thank God. But what's the, what's the center, central meal of, of American Thanksgiving? Turkey. The turkey. We have a far better meal than turkey, and that is the Christian Thanksgiving, which happens every Sunday, and that is the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper. Now, so, so in a, in a sense, it's kind of odd. It always strikes me as a little anticlimactic when we have our Thanksgiving service, you know, because every Sunday is a Thanksgiving, is a Eucharist. Every Sunday we have the better meal, and then we gather this one year to have kind of the lesser Eucharist, the lesser Thanksgiving, uh, with the far lesser meal. Okay, um, those are the most common names, aren't they? Maybe we're missing one or two. Yes? We don't use it much, but Mass? Yeah, that's great. That's great. So uh, Mass was the answer given, and that's true. Um, so so the, the idea of Mass, that word, um, goes back at least to the medieval period. It's accepted by Lutherans, by the way, and it's in our Book of Concord. It's regularly, there's regular usage of the word Mass. The Mass can take on a wide sense, the way we use the language of divine service in order to mean the entire service, or Mass can take on the narrow element of the Lord's Supper and the rite surrounding the Lord's Supper. So it can be used in this wide and narrow sense, and it's perfectly fine for uh, Lutherans to use that as well. No problem there at all. Okay, um, so we have, we have then uh, a good sense of, of what this thing is we're talking about. Now, uh, in, the, in the early church, I should note too, and here you can see the difference between the early church context and, and Luther's context. In the early church for several centuries, the teaching in regard to the Lord's Supper was kept secret. 
Only the baptized could learn what it was and hear the words of institution. It went this way with the Lord's Prayer, too. Um, only the baptized could call upon God as our Father and pray the prayer of the disciples. You have to become a disciple before you can pray as the disciples. And then, holy things for holy people. You have to be holy and washed in holy baptism. You have to be a disciple in order to receive this holy food. Holy things for holy people. And so, the, uh, there, was great, there was great mystery and wonder surrounding this. So much so that the pagan neighbors, and we actually have, um, there's a book by Robert Wilkin, the Christians as the Romans saw them, or something like that. And it's got all these extra, like, pagan, pagan sources, pagan authors, saying what they think is happening in Christian worship on Sunday mornings, and what they think Christianity is about, and, of course, what the rumors are. Uh, the first rumor is that they drown babies. What, what would that be? Baptism. Yeah, infant baptism. <laughs> The second is that they engage in uh, cannibalism. The Lord's Supper. Yeah. And then connected to that, um, in, the, in the Lucan and Pauline accounts of the words of institution, they're attached to what is sometimes called the love feast. I think we would call it a potluck. But because it was a love feast, how did the pagans interpret that? Orgy. So Christians were accused of, of being godless atheists, who drowned babies, engaged in orgies, and practiced cannibalism. Any wonder why they were, they were put to the lions and various other tortures, right? These are the lies going around. But through the lies, you can actually see the truth of what the early church believed and taught and confessed and how we ourselves then are aligned with that early church and what we believe, teach, and confess. Okay, so um, this, this was regarded as a mystery, the other thing you can see in, in our Sunday worship is our Sunday worship is still formally shaped like this. The divine service actually consists of two services. Can anybody name the two services? Service of the Word. Service of the Word and service of the sacrament. Those two services. Where does this come from? It comes from the earliest church where the service of the Word would be held and basically, depending on the context, basically anyone could come to the service of the word. Sometimes, because of the danger of persecution, uh, the elders would function as bouncers. Can you imagine? And they would, they would only allow in baptized Christians and catechumens, those who are engaged in the catechumenate, engaged in the process that leads to becoming baptized and becoming a full-fledged Christian. Those were the only ones allowed in. That was under times of persecution. Now, what happened as soon as the service of the word was over, as soon as um, the, the readings from the scriptures were read, the pastor preached his, his homily or his sermon, and, it was, uh, and that part of the service was over. It's about where we have the offering. Well, the offering comes first, of course, before you dismiss everyone. No, I'm just teasing. Um, but, but where we have the offering, that marks the end of that service. Guess what happened? There was a dismissal. If you are not baptized and in good standing, out you go for coffee and donuts, or whatever the first century equivalent was. Okay. Meanwhile, only the baptized in good standing remain for the next service, which is the service of the sacrament. You see how that worked? It actually, if you think about it, has great wisdom to it, because while people are certainly offended by our uh, by our confession absolution practice, as I mentioned last week, they're also offended when they come and we say, we practice closed communion. And so you, you need to remain in the pew. And so there's this offense. Well, the early church could avoid that offense by saying, hey, if you're not in good standing, it's the end of the service. Go enjoy. Everybody else can have a few minutes of fellowship. Once we're all settled, pastor will re-begin the, the service that is specifically now the service of the sacrament. Okay, so this, this helps us understand some of where we've been and why we have what we have and uh, some of the practice regarding the Lord's Supper. Now it's all, quite, it's all quite public, and the risk of this is in teaching something so precious as the Lord's Supper um, that, it's, that it might fall as a subcategory under that casting your pearls before swine. 
So that's, that's the danger to having this teaching and this doctrine public. But already the horse is out of the barn there. So it was simply teach it. Um, and those who have ears to hear, as our Lord would say, will indeed hear. Again, this is uh, the sacrament of the altar. This is what is to be taught by the head of the family or the head of the household. Um, and he should teach this to his household. As Luther always does, he begins with a statement here in the Catechism and then backs that statement up with Scripture. So, what is the sacrament of the altar? Here's the statement. It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Now, already it's really going to be helpful for us to understand something about Luther's context or else we're going to go astray as many have in the, at least in the 20th century and 21st century, probably even earlier. Okay, what, what is Luther saying here in historic context? And what is the catechism confessing? It is the true body and blood. Why do you have to say true in that context? Yeah, it's not symbolic. Because you have, you have really for the first time in the history of the church, do you have widespread rejection of this teaching that it is truly his body, truly his blood. You have a couple blips on the radar earlier on in the medieval period, but they're just blips. Only at the time of the radical reformation, um, Zwingli and the theological forefathers of what would become our Baptistic, evangelical, non-denominational world, Okay, but that's the first time in the history of the church where you have this widespread uh, teaching that it is just symbolically his body. All you're receiving in your mouth is bread. Just symbolically his blood. All you're receiving in your mouth is wine. So the first statement we want to make is against that. It is, in fact, his true body and blood. In this, in this teaching, we are united with Roman Catholics, we are united with Eastern Orthodox. We're united with a good portion of all of the Anglicans. In other words, about, I don't know, 95% of Christianity. And if you add in all Christians that have existed for 2,000 years, it's probably something like 99.5% of all Christians have believed, one way, shape, or form, that they are receiving the true body and blood of Christ by mouth. I know it feels different. I point this out because it feels so different in our context, where in our context it feels like 95% of people believe it's symbolic, and we're the dinosaurs still holding on to this impossible medievalism. In truth, globally and historically, that number flips, and we need to stand up and stand bold and realize that we may be outnumbered in our context, but we're outnumbered like Navy SEALs that have been dropped into enemy territory, and the rest of the army is entirely encircling the camp, okay? We're, we're only minorities relative to our immediate surroundings, not relative to global Christendom, not relative to historic Christendom. So we can take, we can take some comfort in that, of course. <clears throat> so the first confession is that it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Under the bread and wine. Why, why that language? Doesn't Jesus take the bread and say, this is my body, and take the cup and say, this is my blood? Why does Luther here say, under the bread, under the cup? Now, this is something that's led to a great deal of havoc in our later age because people have forgotten the original context and they've thought that Luther is creating some sort of distance between Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and instead has replaced this, this is language with the language of in, with, and under. As if in, with, and under somehow constituted a new theory of the sacramental presence. I hear this all the time. It, honestly, it kind of depresses me. Um, so the Lutheran position, one second, so the Lutheran position is often articulated this way, and this is totally incorrect. Rome believes that it is the body and blood of Christ. Evangelicals believe that it symbolizes the body and blood of Christ. We don't really believe either of those. We believe it's in, with, and under. If there's something that could put me into an, earlier gra an early grave, it's that. 
I said an earlier grave, Freudian slip, because I'm kind of hoping for an early grave. <laughs> yeah, those are just depressing. It's just depressing. Okay, what Luther means by in, with, and under is precisely identical to is. Well, then why say in, with, and under? What's in dispute? Where does this language come from? What's in dispute is you have to recall that Luther's catechism is written to ex-Roman Catholics. Every single one who reads that catechism in his context is an ex-Roman Catholic. What have Roman Catholics been taught? That there is no bread and wine. There is the body and blood. There's no longer any bread and wine. So how do you say that this bread is the body or, or this body is the bread without, without sounding like you're making a bad confession? You say it is his true body and blood that we're receiving, but there's also bread and wine there. It's in the bread, with the bread, and under the bread. In, with, and under. Now, there's all ways in which you can understand in the bread, with the bread, and under the bread, or in, with, and under. Yeah, I think I got that right. There's all sorts of ways you can get that wrong, by the way. In the bread. Do we mean that there are actual body cells baked into the bread? No, gross. That's cannibalism. No Christian has ever taught or believed that. Ever. Okay. Um, in the bread. With the bread. Do we believe that Christ said, take, he took the bread, and he said, take, eat, and then he points to the body under the bread and says, this is my body. No, because then the bread isn't his body. The bread is there, and his body is under the bread. You see? So there's a way to misunderstand in the bread. There's a way to misunderstand with the bread, and similarly, under the bread. It's the same, it's the same mistake that's made. Right. And you actually sadly find this in Lutheran, in Lutheran teaching, contemporary Lutheran teaching, ancient Lutheran teaching, no way. But really what we're articulating is that it is the true body and blood of Christ that we're receiving by mouth. The bread actually is his body. The wine actually is his blood. And this in, with, and under business is simply to combat this idea that is based on Aristotelian logic and Thomas Aquinas teaching that this, the bread and the wine are somehow not actually there. We Lutherans confess that there is bread there. There is wine there. And that bread is his body and that wine is his blood. Okay? So that's with what's with this strange language of under the bread and wine. So, very basic question at this point. What are you receiving in your mouth at a Lutheran altar? Body and blood of Christ. Yeah, or if you want to say bread that is his body, wine that is his blood. Absolutely. Both are perfectly... That's all we've done so far. That's all we've done so far. Okay? Now, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and drink. We saw this with baptism, that if you break baptism down to its component parts, you have the sign, water, you have the word, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but you also have the institution of Christ. And if it's not carried out according to his institution, it's not a valid baptism. Okay? We talked about this, like siblings baptizing each other in the in the bathtub or as little kids or baptizing pets or you know if we if we somehow got every pagan to our campus for a free meal and turn on the sprinklers and <laughs> loudmouth blasted you know hey in the name of the father son holy spirit ha you're all baptized you're all saved is that according to Christ's institution no and so it's not a valid baptism all right the same thing applies to the lord's supper um what is the sign? It is, it is bread that is his body, wine that is his blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. There's the communication of grace. There's the word, so word and sign. But it has to be according to the institute of Christ. What's an example of it not being according to the institute of Christ that's happened, uh, or at least its attention has been brought to it um, in light of the pandemic? Online, Online communion. Yeah, 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 online communion. It's not in accord with the institution of Christ, who takes, who says, this do. And what does he mean by this do? Everything I've just done. And he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. There's no giving. Um, well, I won't go off on a diatribe on this. Uh, but suffice it to say 
basically every conservative denomination or church body has ruled against this for these, for these reasons. It's not according to his institute. And the argument usually online is like, well, the sign's there and the word's there. It's like, okay, but it's not according to his institution. And that's the third thing we need to keep an eye out for. So this also um, then is why the Lutheran confessions pro, uh, forbid any kind of private communion because the, the principle there is that Christ means this for the entire family of God, for the entire body of Christ. And so it would be, it would be wrong for any one Christian to take that privately to his own home you know, and do that. Uh, Maybe you would have an, you know, no one's going to, no one's probably going to balk at you over some extreme examples, you know, if we all go into the zombie apocalypse and it's just you and your family locked into a bunker for months on end and you finally want to do the Lord's Supper. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody's going to come at you wagging their finger with a, with a cassock on, you know, but, um, but the principle still holds and the exception only proves the, the principle, and that is um, that it needs to be in accord with his institution. Okay, the final part of this, and then I'll break to see if you have questions or comments, but the final part of this is, um, okay, it is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Already there, you have a kind of closed communion taking place. This is a meal only for Christians. Now, we haven't, we haven't gone any narrower than that, but even just right off the bat, uh, it's close to Christians. Where does this come from? From the words of Scripture, where Jesus takes the, takes the bread and takes the cup and gives it to who? His disciples. His disciples. And the word is right there. This is a meal for his disciples. It's not a, it's not a potluck. It's not the cookies and cheese and Kool-Aid. It's not um, hospitality. It's not everybody welcome. It's not visitors get a snack. Um, this, is, this is a meal for Christians, for disciples. Okay. Now, what, when we talk about Christians and disciples, we're going to talk about some, some uh, categories there. We're going to talk about like being baptized. Okay. Um, remember what makes a disciple? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. So a disciple is one who is baptized and taught. They need, before they have the Lord's Supper, they need to be baptized. They need to be taught what the Lord's Supper is. Obviously, they need to affirm that and agree to that. Otherwise, they shouldn't commune. Okay, so we're starting to, they need to be a disciple in good standing, not engaged in some sort of public scandal or impenitence or that kind of thing, because that wouldn't be what a disciple would do. You need to be restored to discipleship before you commune. So there's all these different ways in which being a disciple or being a Christian is factored into uh, whether one may not, whether one may commune or not, but that's the fun, fundamental principle. Christ gives this to his disciples. Therefore, Luther in the Catechism says that it is for us Christians to eat and to drink. All right, we've hit some of the major topics already, and hopefully, in a very basic and foundational way, or as much as we can do, with such a great mystery. Before we go on to the biblical foundation of where this is written and do a thorough treatment there, let's uh, pause and see if you have any questions or concerns, if I've, if I've confused you, or, or maybe you have something to add. In having discussions with evangelical Christians, a lot of them will tell you or try to tell you, well, at least we agree on the essentials, but let's not argue about the non-essentials. Mm, mm. And by non-essentials, they often mean exactly the opposite of what we think, yeah. communion and baptism. And now I'm coming to believe that I think in the future I'll say, no, we don't agree on the essentials, which are communion <laughs> and <laughs> baptism. Right. I, I don't know. Your thoughts? I think that's a good rhetorical approach. I think that's a good rhetorical approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you push, when you, when you push really hard on it, uh, the the reason for denominations, difference in denominations, is ultimately a difference in the gospel itself. Generally speaking, I mean, nine times out of ten, or something like that. There are very few exceptions to that. Uh, maybe one of the possible exceptions that pops into my mind is like the division between wells 
Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod and LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Uh, some kind of division there where we're not in communion fellowship. That doesn't trace all the way back to the gospel. But most others do. Most others do. In Rome, our differences are many, but ultimately a difference over the gospel itself. The East, our differences are many, but mostly over the gospel itself. Non-denominationalism, same thing, because in non-denominationalism you get one of two articulations of the gospel, the kind of Arminian articulation of the gospel, you have to decide and make a decision for Jesus. You know, so it's like, it's like, here's the gospel from Lutheran lips. Jesus died for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the gospel from non-denominational Armenian decision theology lips. Jesus died for you if you make a decision to believe in him and follow him. Right? So see, there's that if there. That if is huge. I mean, that's the essential, isn't it? Um, and then, and then true, true also. Uh, so, so we Lutherans again. Here is the gospel from our lips: Christ died for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Here is the gospel from Calvinistic lips: Christ died for you if you are elect. Now, so you see, so you've got that if added in. I mean, and how does Rome do it? Christ died for you if you have faith formed in love and you continue in good works and charity unto eternal life. You know, so there's every other articulation, there's this if attached to it, and that if ends up transforming and changing the gospel. So, truth be told, we don't really agree on the essentials. I'm usually, I mean, if we're having like tea or something, I'm usually nicer than that. I don't like, you know, I don't lead with that. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's good to keep in mind. So if we're disagreed there, we're going to disagree on the sacraments and that kind of thing, too. Oh. Yes, please. The last five words, to eat and to drink, do you think Luther put that in there um, to go against oh, the idea of the you. processions and things like thank that? Thank you, great point. Great point. I'm sorry, I forgot to touch on that. Yeah, for us Christians to eat and to drink, what else would we do with it? He says eat and drink. Well, as the case may be, Christians have invented other things to do with it, like put it on a pole and parade it around the city. That's called Corpus Christi. It was very big in, in medieval uh, Catholicism, but continues today to some degree. What else do we do? Put it on a stand and worship it. Uh, you, can, you can do that at any Roman Catholic parish these days. Um, in fact, just a little bit of... What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're talking about the communion of one kind. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another aberration. So these aberrations are where you don't, where you neither eat or drink at all. You know, Corpus Christi or putting it up on the um, monstrance so that people worship it. Um, and then, and then, as you said, yes, uh, Christ institutes eating and drinking. I, again, throughout the uh, this go, this comes to be in the early medieval period on account of the unclean barbarian hordes coming in and we not wanting to give them the cup. I mean, these are my forefathers, I think. It's very racist. Um, anyway, so just bread, just bread was given out to the barbarians, to the laity, while uh, the priests and the priestly class um, alone could have the cup. And all sorts of reasons and rationale were built around this, but it resulted in communion in one kind. And there are still Roman Catholic parishes today that have that. I, w I visited the Basilica in St. Louis uh, over a decade ago, but it was communion of one kind the day that I visited. So it is to eat and to drink in accordance with our Lord's institution. Yeah, thank you. On, on that topic about eat and drink, what about intinction? Yeah, yeah, intinction. I'll get myself in trouble here, but you know, it's early enough in the day. <laughs> I've only gotten myself in trouble a few times already. But yeah, intinction, while, while permitted and in some respects encouraged among our district circles, strictly speaking, is an aberration and ought not be done. Precisely out of respect for our Lord's words, take eat, take drink. And they are, they are clearly contextually two different actions. Intinction is where you, where you take the cup and you dip the bread in the cup, and then you neither eat nor drink, you slurp. You know, or you do both. Uh, what this would, be, this would be like a two-hour-long lecture that I would love to give, but I would probably be the only one to enjoy it. 
Uh, but it would be all the ways in which the devil mocks and makes fun and tries to twist and turn each and every word of the Lord's Supper. Every single one of them. And the, and the, the many, many ways. Like what Jesus said could not be more simple. And grammatically could not be more simple. And Satan has messed with every single word. And so it's like Jesus says, I mean, it's like now that I'm a parent, I understand this all the more. Okay, got this? Got this. Take, eat, take, drink. Did he say just drink? I think he said just drink. Did he say just eat? I think he said just eat. Did he say take and mix them together so that you're neither either? I mean, it's like if we could find a way to disobey God, we've tried it. You know, and again, it's just so plainly simple. Um, you know, and much of, this, much of this intention stuff has to do, too, with a bunch of false belief uh, regarding, oh, gosh, getting through it quicker. Why would you ever want to do that? Let's, let's trample Jesus' institution so we can move through this thing faster. Uh, and then, yeah. Yeah, I lost my train of thought on the other. Well, it's probably for the better. I got so flustered by that, let's move through it faster mentality that that's sufficient. My blood pressure has gone high enough. I hope I'm hiding it. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, One thing about this word under, if I may. Uh, I I think when we talk, uh, this, one of the, one of the great things about Luther is he tries not to get too bound up in philosophical categories that are in vogue at the time that he's writing, but actually aren't even that in vogue anymore, right? The Aristotelian categories, which makes it a lot more timeless as a, as a way of stating the doctrine. But one of the things that they used to say is that, is that the substance is under the attributes, right? There's, it's like it's, sort of, it, it's, it's sub the attributes. It's, it's, it's supporting the, the, the attributes or properties of a thing. And so by saying that the, the, the body of Christ is under the bread, what I think it, it kind of has this meaning to me, mm-hmm. right, understanding the philosophy is that don't expect the bread to taste salty or be tough like, you know, raw meat might be, mm-hmm. uh, but to taste like bread. Don't expect the wine to taste like blood, but to taste like wine. It's under the attributes of the, of the bread and wine. It's not, it, we're not getting like the, the taste of blood or the taste of, of, of meat mm-hmm. when we have the body and blood of Christ. We're getting the substance mm-hmm. of it. And, but then the part that sort of undoes the, the, the Catholic position is the with, where he says, look, but the bread's still there. It's still with the bre- body and the, the bread mm-hmm. and, the, and the wine. It, right, it's under the bread and wine. It's got its attributes, the bread and wine's attributes, mm-hmm. but it's with the bread and wine. It hasn't replaced it. Yeah, I, based on based on what um, Luther says elsewhere, and this is a foundations class, so I'll try to answer this as expediently as possible because this is going to go over the heads of a lot of folks, and that's fine. But it would it would be very unlike Luther to use Aristotelian and Thomistic categories in order to put forward a positive doctrine of the Lord's Supper, in order to articulate a theory of how the substance and the accident of the bread cohere. So I doubt that. I doubt that. But I have, I have no doubt in my mind that what Luther is, is rather asserting is precisely what the words of Christ assert. There are, there are if you will, and it's, it's a rather crude approach, two substances um, complete, with, complete with their accidents, if you will. I mean, not a, that's not an issue. And those two substances are brought into one. We're talking about the bread and the body. Are brought into one. And this, this oneness, this koinonia, based on is, you know, is the bread we break not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Is this cup we drink not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. And thus Lutherans articulate a sacramental union, the impossible union of two substances together. That's where our analogy, and it's just that an analogy, becomes Christological. 
just as you have Christ being true man and true God, two complete and distinct things brought into one Christological union, one person. So you have these two distinct things, bread and body, wine and blood, brought into one sacramental union. But without, yeah. without becoming, right, the, the Christ didn't become this new thing, God-man, right? There's the, the God, he's 100% God and 100% man, and I guess you could say the same thing. It's 100% bread and 100% body of Christ. Similar, yeah. I mean, again, along the Christological analogy, you don't want to fall into a kind of Eutychianism where you've mixed the two together, or a kind of Nestorianism where you've glued them together like boards. And there are articulations that parallel those two Christological errors in the errors of sacramentology. And you can fetch those out and write a really nice master's level paper on that and press your profs. Yeah. Uh, by and large, Luther isn't interested in using the Aristilian, Aristotelian categories of substance and accident, especially not in any positive building sort of way. He's just going to assert what the scriptures say and assert that in such a way that, that his common people are going to understand that, hey, there's actually bread there and there's actually wine there. And that by receiving that bread by mouth, you're receiving Christ's body by mouth. By receiving that wine by mouth, you're receiving his blood by mouth. Yeah. So this is, all the, this is all the first half of a two-part, and really, the Lord's Supper, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is just this simple. There's two points. The first is, what do you receive? That's what we've been articulating in the main here the entire time. The body and blood of Christ, by mouth. Okay. Why do you receive it? That's the second part. And that's the part we're going to get to in spades next week. But that is, as Jesus says, for the forgiveness of sins. So those are the two essential, the two fundamental things to, rem to remember, and they come right from the words of Jesus, as, as we'll see. Was there, another, was there another hand that I saw? I don't want to ignore or leave anyone out. All right, then what I want to do with you just very quickly is run through where is this written, and then what we'll do next week is we'll just go through this uh, piece by piece, bit by bit. But I simply want to use it now to support what Luther has already said here. Under the, under the question, what is the sacrament of the altar? Now, where is this written? The holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Remember, John in his gospel doesn't have an institution narrative per se. If he does, it's hidden. It's very artistically done, as is John's way. Um, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, we call these the synoptic gospels. Optic meaning eye or view, and sin meaning together. They all have the same eye or view toward telling the story of Jesus. It tends to be more, much more linear than, for example, John's gospel, which is more topical or thematic. Um, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then St. Paul. 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 are also our data points. And St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 articulates the words of institution. What you'll find when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul is you'll find that all of these accounts have minor variations to them. That's great. That's an attestation to their validity. They didn't all get together and say, now what are we going to say Jesus said? That would make one suspicious. It's collusion. Instead, they just said, the other thing to keep in mind, too, and I think that this is equally as beautiful, Jesus said what he said and instituted the Lord's Supper, let's say around, let's say around uh, 33 AD, okay? uh, just prior to his death. When are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul written? Well, the earliest of them would have been written in the 40s. And it's argued that Matthew is probably the earliest of them written somewhere in in the early to mid-40s, how many years have passed since Jesus actually historically instituted his supper? Let's just say at least 10. At least 10. So for 10 years, Christian communities have been gathering. And from their gathering, from their participation in the Lord's Supper, from these contexts, the scriptures are written. And so you, what you can actually see is two kind of beautiful liturgical traditions merging. You can see great similarity between Matthew and Mark, that tradition, and great similarity between Luke and Paul. And when these, when these converge and are brought together all into a whole so that we keep everything and lose nothing, that's what we have here below. The fancy word for this is conflation. We take all four of these texts and we conflate them together, we smush them together so that we lose nothing and keep everything. 
And then this becomes our liturgical formulation. You know, what if somebody instituted the Lord's Supper by just saying, Jesus Christ, on the night before his death, took bread and said, this is my body. Then he took the cup and said, this is the, this is the blood of the new covenant. Eat this and drink this for the forgiveness of your sins. Is that a valid institution? Absolutely. How do we know that? Well, the signs are there. The essential words are there, what it is and what it does. And is it done with the intention of being according to the institution of Christ and the word of Christ? Absolutely. So we don't need to get hung up on the particulars of language, you know. Heaven forbid, of course, but what if I did omit some part of the words of institution? If it was substantive, I would hope an elder would come up to me and say, uh, Rody, could you do that again? <laughs> Mia culpa, sure. Um, but if it wasn't substantive, um, if it didn't have to do with the, 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 direct, the direct content of what it is or what it does, um, it's, still a valid, it's still a valid institution. God isn't up there like counting syllables. How would he do that anyway if it was done in a different language or if the translation were different, you see? So there's a fluidity and an ease here, and we don't need to get wound up about that. Of course, historically, Jesus said what he said. This is transmitted into the liturgical communities. It's brought to our attention. We as Lutherans gather them all together and say, this is the whole of all of it. This is what we're going to use liturgically. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Okay, so very quickly, and we'll just end with the words of our Lord here. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, as you will see, then this will undergird everything that Luther has said before, everything the Catechism has taught before. And you can see very clearly that don't get confused and wound up by all the different teachings on the Lord's Supper. But as a Christian, erase everything. Go straight to the mouth of Jesus, straight to his words, and what does he say? And you will find that he himself tells you, this is my body, this is my blood, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Let your heart rest there. Let your heart rest there. You can, you can knock all the other theology books off your table and just learn it straight from the Lord.